Welcome to Always and Forever, a One Tree Hill podcast where two lifelong friends and superfans analyze and dissect the greatest teen show from the early 2000s. This week, we are discussing who will survive and what will be left of them. And damn, that sounds ominous. The 17th episode of season three, which was written by the show's creator, directed by John Asher, and originally aired on the WB on March 29th, 2006. And I guess it should also be noted this episode was also partially written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who created the five stages of grief in her book from 1969 on death and dying. Oh, that's where it's from. Yes, it is from an individual. But what do you think about the five stages of grief? And we'll get into that in the actual episode itself. I feel like it's not a linear process, grieving. And I feel like these stages make it seem like you hit this, and then you go to this stage, and then you go to that, and then you end with this. (laughs) Right. I I have a lot of thoughts. I end up going down a rabbit hole about this a little bit, too, and we'll bring that up in the actual discussion, but... Yeah, this these stages, I think, are very outdated. And also, I feel like this episode is very messy. Yes, it definitely is. I can't wait to unpack that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yes. <for sure. laughs> Framing it around the five stages of grief is weird. But yeah, like I know we both talked about this off mic before we started recording, but I am excited to dive in and really talk about our thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what your research, what you found in your research, because... <sighs> I've never looked the stages up before, so... And I didn't do it until, like, about two hours before recording, and I'm like, oh, shit, this is, this is fun. <laughs> Interesting, I love it. <laughs> well, let's dive in, let's get to it. Always and Forever is spoiler-free, but stay tuned after the credits for a fully spoiled discussion. Somebody told me that this is the place where everything's better and everything's safe. After attending Keith's funeral, everyone grapples with his death and goes through the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, fear, guilt, depression, and acceptance. Lucas becomes angry when Mouth brings up Jimmy's funeral and doesn't want to hear his name brought up again. Peyton is on crutches as she recovers from her gunshot wound. Dan struggles with a guilty conscience and visions of a young Keith haunt him on a daily basis. Rachel and Brooke throw a party at the school to help everyone cleanse themselves from the tragedy. Lucas arrives at the party and questions if this is the right thing to do. Lucas finds Peyton in the library and teases her for kissing him on the day of the shooting. Peyton explains that she thought she was going to die, so that's why she did it. Lucas says that it's okay because he's in love with Brooke. After a kid makes an insensitive comment at the party, Lucas becomes upset and leaves. Rachel and Mouth slow dance. She kisses him and then confesses that she released the time capsule. Mouth walks away and tells Rachel he doesn't like her anymore. Haley and Nathan recommit to each other and want to live together as a married couple again. When Brooke finds out, she gives them the apartment back and even makes them a new comforter from Karen's wedding dress material. In like two days. (laughs) I had to say it. (laughs) When Dan visits Karen, she finds out that Lucas was the one who pulled Dan out of the dealership fire. Between that incident and Lucas going back into the school when there was an active shooter present, Karen unfairly puts the blame on Lucas for Keith's death. Lucas beats himself up for going back into the school, but Nathan and Haley assure him that it's not his fault and that he was trying to save a life, just like Keith was doing. Pete Wentz waits outside Peyton's house in a limo, and they apparently make out. That's a real sentence that was actually (laughs) written down. 
LucasArts Brooke, he loves her, and she says that she wishes he could rescue her from everything. Brooke visits Peyton and shares her worries about Lucas having feelings for Peyton. Peyton tells Brooke that she'll always care for Lucas, but she's not going to hurt her again. Larry tells Brooke and Peyton that best friends should stick together, and that Brooke can move in with them. Whitey tells Lucas that he should be the man that Keith taught him to be. Lucas takes his advice and goes with Mouth, Skills, Junk, and Fergie to Jimmy's funeral, even though Karen is not happy about it. Busy crying like a baby, I'm Caitlin Illinich. And grieving in my own healthy way without listening to the society's expectation of me, I am Jeremy Rodriguez. Yes. <laughs> we got very melancholy for this intro, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I think it's appropriate. It's been a rough couple episodes, Caitlin. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm ready to laugh because this is really just bringing me down here. A little bit, yeah. I'm uh, I'm excited. The next episode, without spoiling anything, is a little bit more lighthearted, thankfully. And this, the next episode is my first episode that I ever saw. Oh, gosh. I am so Woo-hoo. excited to get into that. <laughs> But right now, we're still talking about some of the sadder shits. So this episode is based on, uh, or titled after the song, I should say, by the band's Murder by Death. It's actually an album. That is that is correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going by my original notes, Caitlin. Do you want to talk about what happened uh, about two hours before we started recording? <laughs> So I was looking at the link that Jeremy put on our Google Doc to the song. And we thought it was the song. It was. We thought it was the song. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, wait a minute. This is not the song. This is the album title. And the song's <laughs> underneath it in like a little, a little like font that you could really not notice. You could easily not see it. But yeah. So it's an entire album that we did not listen to. So I texted Jeremy and was like, um, what do we do? But the funny thing is, is like when I, the link that I actually provided, it defaults to track number six, which is the song, A Masters in Reverse Psychology. Like, and and that's what I thought the song was. I I thought that was, oh, this is the song who will survive and what will be left of them. Yeah, makes sense. it did, the same, did it do the same thing for you? Did it it defaulted to... to one of the songs, and it wasn't the first one either. Yeah, I don't know if okay. it was number six, but it must have been. <laughs> so basically what, what we're trying to say is that we're, we're kind of unprepared for this uh, song discussion. I mean, you know what? That's okay. <laughs> Who wants to hear about a whole album anyway? Let's be honest. But I mean, I, I will put the notes I originally wrote down for that particular song, track six. So, I mean, I just thought it's saying, like, hey, we're all waiting for the ads, like, you know, because there's some lyrics that are saying, like, you know, knocking back the whiskey sours. And I think the song's just about grief in general. Um, as that far was as, the like, same one I listened to. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> as far as the actual uh, album title itself, I'm not entirely sure. What do you think? I actually see it as pretty straightforward because, like, there's this, in the previous episode, there's this major tragedy and then you're kind of wondering you're left wondering you know from that end of that episode who will survive and like you can take survive kind of loosely like who will physically you know be alive but also like what is this going to do to the loved ones of keith yeah like how will you survive that sadness and what will be left of them after they you know find out that he actually is dead so 
Yeah, I think it really kind of just summarizes grief, like especially when a tragedy is involved, when it's so unexpected. It obviously takes you by surprise and in a lot of ways you're not you're not prepared for it. So, you know, there's all different types of grief, but a sudden death is really like gutting. <laughs> especially with like the context behind this death too. I mean, I think I mean, I can imagine, like, I've, I haven't had, I've been very fortunate not to have many people die in my life, but I do imagine it's probably much different to lose a loved one to gun violence and have them suddenly murdered than it is to, like, have somebody die from cancer or, like, have, like, a slow, slow dying process. I mean, none of it's easy, but, yeah, I think a sudden death, especially a tragedy like a murder, is really hard to grapple with yeah it's like a senseless crime you know you're left answering questions or you're you're left asking questions with really no answers <laughs> yeah because it's just a it, it's a lot to deal with and as we will talk about when we get into these uh stages of grief yeah <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off with the episode it's, it begins with Keith's funeral, mm-hmm. and everyone is standing by the gravesite in black. It kind of pans across the crowd, and you hear the pastor or whoever giving a speech, and you get to see, like, a bunch of different faces, and it all, like, it becomes, as a viewer, it just becomes so real, like, Keith didn't survive this. I mean, you're left in the end of that episode not thinking that he's going to survive, but you never know with TV. So this immediately answers that question. And then we see Lucas put dirt into the grave. And then we see Dan put dirt into the grave. And that's when the stages pick up from there. Yes, and it's kicked off with the voiceover. The stages of our grief, anger, fear, guilt, depression, acceptance, and the first seeds of grief... And then you see him put the dirt in the grave, and then it cuts to denial. And each act for this episode is supposed to deal with each of the five stages of grief. And and I guess we we will talk about like whether or not they succeed in <laughs> illustrating those. So okay, so as we said in our intro, I did a little bit of research on the five stages of grief, and let me talk a little bit about like what led me to that. Um, there was there was this podcast I listened to a long time ago. It was from uh, Buffering, a rewatch adventure. They were discussing a certain episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that features similar themes from this episode, and I'm not going to reveal too much, Caitlin, because one day you will watch it. I know <laughs> there is a shooting in that in that show. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Mm-mm. Or something with no, a gun. <laughs> yeah, not what, I'm, not what I'm referring to, but well, oh, okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> anybody who watches Buffy like knows like there is an episode that deals with the the uh, aftermath of grief, essentially. But anyway, they brought on a uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, comedian, writer, and former host of the podcast uh, Angel on Top, which is an Angel Rewatch podcast. Her name is Brittany Ashley. And um, Brittany Ashley also hosts a podcast of her own called Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. And in that podcast, she interviews people who have lost a parent. And each episode also includes a pop culture segment featuring a TV or movie moment that represents a parental death. And, you know, the reason why 
Brittany Paz's podcast, she lost her own mother when she was six years old, and she's essentially been affected by that for her entire life. So yeah, she interviews different people, and I must say, it is a very, very good podcast. Um, it is incredibly very triggering if anybody wants to check it out. Um, I tried listening to it back when I was working in an office, like, at my desk, and I almost broke down in tears, so I'm just saying, like, you know, if you do want to listen to it, make sure you're, like, in a great mental state, make sure you're, like, you know, protecting yourself by all means, like, you know, just a giant content warning for that. But anyway, all that, just to explain the context, uh, Brittany was on this uh, episode of Buffer and a Rewatch Adventure, and um, she was she was talking about how... Uh, to, to set things off, she was talking about how, like, you know, after you lose a parent, there are certain, like, you know, landmarks that they will miss out on. Like, if you get married or if you choose to have kids, like, they're not going to be there. And this quote that I wrote down, I listened back to the episode just to make sure I was getting it, because this always resonated with me. And Brittany frames it as a joke, but it still is, it still has a very serious tone to it. So I'll just read it out. There are these landmarks or milestones in life where you're going to feel different waves of grief. It's just not a straight line. I don't know if you ever really reach a point of, quote-unquote, acceptance in some transcendental way that you're led to believe. Whoever made the five stages of grief, I know it's a person's name, I feel like they were also responsible for the fucking food pyramid that just fucked us all up, where I was like, I need to eat ten pieces of bread a day. And that really resonated with me, because it's it's so true. I I mean, I have lost loved ones before. It's it's not that, like, simple. It's a lot more nuanced. Oh, it is. And I, I definitely agree with, like, the waves of grief. Like, I, I just feel like these stages, they, they can't just be, like, you start with one, and then you go to the next one, and then you end with acceptance like it just doesn't I feel like you could feel all those things you could feel denial and anger and guilt and depression and like you could feel that all at once and then you might feel one thing one point in your life and then another and another point of your life and it, it it's just like it is messy and I feel like the idea of acceptance too I don't think you ever really truly accept that the person dies I think if anything you accept that this is the new normal there's going to be days where I'm just going to be really sad and I'm going to cry and I'm going to think about this person and then there's some days where I'm going to like think about like a happy memory of them I don't think you will ever accept the fact like hey this person is dead this person's gone now yeah I totally agree with that I don't think I don't know just like any death like accepting it means that like you can kind of it's basically saying like you're done which you're not like yeah exactly grief is ongoing there was this uh one metaphor that i that i heard a long time ago and i i forgot i don't know who created it but they say grief is more like a ball like a ball in a jar the ball is like really big at first and it's gonna like hit the sides and you know it's always gonna hit the sides and it's always going to hurt but the ball will shrink but the ball will keep bouncing around, and then sometimes I'll hit the sides, and then, you know what, that's when the sadness will overcome you every now and then. Yeah, I, oh, I like that. Because I kind of think about, like, you know, I've lost grandparents, and my cat, that was really, really difficult, um, too. And, like, you get to a point where you're okay enough, but, like, there can, you can hit random moments where it comes out of nowhere, and you just, like, could cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, it never stops. Exactly. 
it's very sad so yeah we don't uh so i think it's safe to say neither of us really subscribe to this idea that the episode frames itself around but um i will say i end up doing so after after re-listening to britney's quote that's when i decided to go down a rabbit hole about the five stages of grief and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model. So I, sh- I should know it was originally the five stages, but it has been adapted to include seven stages. This episode actually includes six. Did we say five earlier? Because it's definitely six. Did I say five? <laughs> Just realizing that. <laughs> I did say five in the recap. <laughs> we're, we're keeping it as it is, but... <laughs> Um, but I will know the, uh, you know, and again, like it's been adapted to include like, you know, different people have like added their own stages, but what it's essentially missing is the first stage is shock or disbelief. And then it goes into, the de- into denial. Um, also, uh, the stage that's replaced by fear in this episode, it's actually bargaining. So I don't know where fear came. So I guess like everybody's mileage may vary when it comes to the stages of grief. Interesting. Bargaining. What does that really mean? I think it's more like, you know, you start to think of th- different things, like, oh, if I were to do this instead, like, would this person have survived? Which I feel like this episode does kind of touch on in various stages throughout, though. But I kind of see that as guilt, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say that as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But here's the bombshell about it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when she wrote this... She wrote it based on the emotions that a patient goes through when they're diagnosed with a terminal illness. So it was never meant to represent the people who lost loved ones. It's been misappropriated over the years. Oh my god, are you serious? I am dead serious. That makes a lot more sense then. <laughs> but even then, like, you know, just just putting that aside, like some people were saying that it's not that's not even an accurate representation of it, too. Because for one thing, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, like, this is all based on interviews. She interviewed, like, you know, dozens of patients who were had terminal illnesses about their stages. Um, so this is not based on actual science, it's all anecdotal in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's not 100 percent uh accurate. And I've read, a, I've read a few think pieces. I didn't read too many of them in depth, but a lot of them were saying, like, you know, this isn't a very healthy way. But yes, like, when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, you, you know, you could, like, look to the five stages of grief and be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going through anger right now. I'm going through the stage right now. This is normal. Like, it's fine. I will be okay. And that's very great. However, there are some people who will look at these stages and think, am I grieving the right way? And there is no mm-hmm. right way to grieve. So in that case, it's not the most healthy model, I don't think. No. The fact that it's just in stages at all. Like, it's linear, and, like, you're going to move one, two, three, four, five. It just, it's so much more messy than that. Yeah. And it should also be noted that the bulk of this episode takes place in one night. <laughs> from the middle of the anger act all the way up to the part where Lucas says he's going to Jimmy's funeral. That all takes place in one night. So it just seems weird to think that you cycle through all these stages in such a short period of time. There's just no way. But, like, at the same time, I feel like you could feel a lot of these things at the same time. Yes. But the way they chunk the episode, it's like, okay, here's denials first, and then anger's next, and fears after that. And I don't know. Why did they struck? Why did they put this limit? Like, they if they took the... The stage is out of this episode. Like, it still would have been a decent episode. 
I think so too. And I think the big through line through this episode is that like everybody grieves in their own way. And I think that's a great message on its own. Yeah, I agree. It just it, it feels very tacked on. It feels like they were trying to say, let's make cinema. Let's try to say something. Because even let's the acts cinema. like <laughs> Be, because even even the acts themselves, if uh, like like let's say in a perfect world, like grief is linear, denial, anger, blah blah blah, like the the actual events of each act don't really coincide with. <laughs> there, there's some, there's a few, but it's not the most cohesive message. But I guess we can start talking about them now. Do you want to do you want to talk about denial? Yes, uh, I totally agree with you. I can't wait to like criticize the heck out of this because there's a bunch of scenes that I feel like don't fit in that particular stage, and then that, that might have been better on a different stage. But then, like, just my overall thought is take the stages out and just show yes. the grief's messy and like what you already said, Jeremy, that like everyone was doing it in a different way, mm-hmm. and it was okay that they had different ways of like coping with us. Yeah, take out the grief stages and take out Lucas's opening voiceover. The episode yeah. is like, I feel like it's good. It's a good episode on its whole. Just, it's really messy. Yeah. But, so, denial. We see Lucas and Karen cry in front of the coffin. We're just going to do these rapid fire. Sure. Um, Nathan Haley, they have sex. They, they say, oh my god, are we terrible people? Oh my god. But then they decide to say, oh, um, let's move in together. Life's too short, blah, blah, blah. And then we go to the funeral reception. There's a lot of people there. Mouth brings up Jimmy's name, saying that Jimmy's funeral's on Tuesday. Lucas yells at Mouth. Um, we see an awkward scene for between Brooke and Peyton. And we also see that the school has changed. There's now metal detectors. There's now a shrine in front of Jimmy's locker. And we see Lucas kick that shrine. And this, this denial section is also where Dan starts to see visions of a young Keith, which mm-hmm. is goes on throughout like all of the stages i think there's probably a dan scene in every single one or almost um so that's recurring so what do you think like what do you think deals with the idea of denial <laughs> if we had to pigeonhole anything i think this one is probably one of the worst ones for <laughs> matching with the stage i guess you could kind of say nathan and Haley are in their own little bubble they're not really like facing head-on what's going on but that's like their way of coping with this. I don't know if you can really call that denial. Right, exactly. I don't think there's never a stage where like, oh my god, Keith's dead. <laughs> you know, Keith's dead, and we're just ignoring it. They're not ignoring it. They're just they're I seeking know. comfort in each other. That's fine. Yeah, and the fact that like Lucas gets mad at Mouth when he brings up the funeral, and then later kicks the memorial in front of the locker. That to me shows anger. That doesn't show denial. Hmm. He's angry at Jimmy because at this point, everyone believes that Jimmy was the one who killed Keith. We as the audience are the only one, and other than Dan and us as the audience, we're the only ones who know what actually happened. So I understand Lucas's anger in that moment, but I also understand, like, Mouth is trying to grapple with, like, losing an old friend at the same time. And that's really, and under terrible circumstances. So, like, even though at this time everyone thinks that Jimmy is the villain, I understand Mouth still trying to deal with it. And I just had this thought for the first time. I didn't have this thought while I was watching the episode. I didn't have this thought even before, and I'm just like processing this in real time. What if this episode is not about 
losing Keith? What if it's about losing Jimmy? Because in a way, you could say that Lucas is in denial about Jimmy's death. Like, he's just ignoring it. And, you know, like, he's angry about the fact, like, oh, he killed uh, he killed Keith. And he's just sort of, like, ignoring the fact that he is secretly in pain about one of his friends taking his own life. Yeah. Interesting. I have to, like, think about that. <laughs> yeah, sorry I don't to, like, even know if I can fully react. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to just, like, drop this, like, right here in real time, but I just thought about it. Maybe we can navigate it as we continue. I mean, I think this episode, and I had thought this before, it is dealing with the... It's mainly dealing with Keith, but I know there are the undertones of Jimmy, because with all of the, the math stuff, and then where the episode ends with them going to the funeral. Right. So... I think it's like both at the same time, but that's kind of interesting to think of the stages now in relation to, to Jimmy specifically. Yeah. I mean, even then, like, I mean, we'll have to, I'll have to think about it like as we get into each stage, but I could, I could argue that Lucas is in denial about Jimmy's death here. But I also put like, you know, just to go into some of my other notes, I also wrote that Peyton is denial about the kiss. <laughs> you know, she's like ignoring it and she's ignoring Brooke. And you just get this really awkward scene between them because Brooke's like apologizing that she hasn't been around because she's been with Lucas and Karen. But then like Peyton's being awkward because she knows all that that happened, but Brooke doesn't know it yet. And there's like this weird tension. Yeah, I guess Peyton doesn't really want to face what happened and like admit to it. And you also get a little bit of an inkling too that Brooke is feeling insecure right now too because there's a moment like after Peyton walks away you see Peyton walk by Lucas or like you know use her crutches to go by uh Lucas Lucas and Peyton just subtly acknowledge each other and Brooke notices that Mm -hmm. it's such a subtle blink and you miss it moment but we can also say that maybe she's in denial about that because because let's face it like you know she is holding back her feelings because Brooke I'm saying is uh holding back her feelings to be strong because right now like you know her boyfriends and her boyfriend's mother are hurting like hell so like how can you really like bring up these feelings I'm like oh god I'm insecure about my relationship now yeah yeah it's not appropriate so I was thinking right now about Dan because this is where we get that scene with a young Keith and Dan And there's a bird that was dying, and Keith was Hmm. trying to save it. Yeah, that was in the intro, but yes, it was in the intro. Okay, (laughs) yes, it was. All right, (laughs) I'm getting it because I didn't put it in my notes, but I was thinking about it right now. Yes, but talk about it, please. (laughs) I think it could kind of fit with denial a little bit because so the bird is was dying. Keith was trying to help save it, and then Dan comes over with a rock, drops it on the bird, and says he was weak. That's why he did it. And I think in this episode, like as a whole, we see that Dan feels guilt. We definitely see that. But I think he's also in denial of what he did. Because look, he's making this, he has this memory of when he dropped that rock on the bird. And it's like he's giving that as a reason, like the bird was weak, so he needed to die. Just like Keith was weak and he needed to die. That's what it's really saying. So it's like he's trying to come up with an excuse or like a reason for what he did. But there, there isn't one. You know, he, he doesn't really want to face it. He, he feels the guilt, but at the same time, he doesn't want to face what he did, I think, personally. So I think it could fit with denial. 
Yeah, I can definitely say that. You can tell that this is about, uh, you can tell Dan is trying to equate the two because that's how it, like, cuts down. Because you see a young Dan looking down at the dead bird, and then it cuts to Dan looking down into his, uh, brother's, uh, whatchamacallit, his brother's grave. Yeah, that's where it cut. Yeah, now I remember the scene. It's all, like... I just watched it a few hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. I did so. But the opening is so short and then it already jumps into denial, so. Exactly. Anyhow, what else is of note in this uh, particular scene? That's all I have for denial. I should say. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I really have to. Um, oh, we should, we should note that Deb is coming home. Oh, yeah. And, you know, at least Nathan doesn't have to be alone in this big house. Oh, no, but she will be, because Nathan and Haley are moving in together. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. So, so cute. Okay. Do you want to talk about anger? Yeah, let's do it. So, in the anger segment, we have Haley tell- tells Brooke she's going to move out, because she wants to be with Nathan. Lucas gets the text to meet at school. <laughs> and so he goes to this party. He then talks to Peyton in the library and basically teases her for kissing him the day of the shooting. It's so cringy. Yeah, I want to talk about that scene in depth. <laughs> um, and then Lucas, there's a there's a guy who makes some insensitive comment about some like shooter drink or I don't know, taking a yeah. shot, but like. Shooter in the hallway. Yeah, yeah. And everybody had, which would have been fine. And then, you know, it could be cool if, like, Lucas misinterpreted it. But he did say everybody had the lockdown. That's the part where you're like, okay, you are purposely being an insensitive jerk. Yeah, so Lucas pushed him against the wall, which I think he had a right to. And then he said, you know, it's, this party isn't right. And he left. Mm-hmm. And that's a fair reaction. A few, a few, uh, just like a few little pieces of trivia. That guy who says shooter in the hallway, that's Russ, the guy who beat up Jimmy in episode 15 and made a brief appearance in episode 16. Are you serious? I I didn't notice that. I never noticed it until this watch. I've seen this episode several times over the years. This is my first time ever noticing that. But yes, that is the same actor. I don't know if it's about to be the same character, but at the very least, it is the same actor. Well, I guess that makes sense if it is the same character. (laughs) Yeah. In which case, I'm like, it it just seems kind of weird because uh, this guy hasn't held... And again, like, we, we can go into the nuances of, like, hey, if you're a bully, you didn't cause a school shooting or anything like that. But, like, the fact that he doesn't feel any sort of shame or anything, it's just really weird. That is that is really weird. Another stupid thing I want to bring up, too. You, you must have heard me giggling when you said, like, uh, Lucas receives a text from Rachel. <laughs> so, this but Was text, it Rachel or was it? It was Rachel. It yes. was Rachel. Okay. Um, it says, 10 p.m. high school, you need this. I should know that the text is from January 27th, 2006. I noticed that. Okay. <laughs> and that, that is yesterday in reality. Oh, for us, Today's yes. January 28th and we're recording this. Oh, shit, that's funny. I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about that. Uh, happy anniversary, uh... To the to the day that Lucas got the stacks. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's so weird. But I just think it's funny that that hex because I remember this because I'm one of those like weird people who does notice this. But you will see in future episodes, you will see Keith's tombstone. It definitely says that he dies in March of 2006. So which completely contradicts the time period of this text. They really screwed up the time frame. <laughs> and by season three, they knew that they were going to make three and four senior year i guess they just maybe didn't think they'd be renewed again for season four 
And then I don't know what they thought, but like I thought at that point they knew that three and four would be senior year of high school. And don't even get me started when we get to season four. The stuff that occurs um, <laughs> makes can literally not be possible. As we always say, time has no meaning in Tree Hill. It really doesn't. I mean, the fact that this whole episode is structured around the five stages of grief or six stages of grief in 24 hours. Come on now. Oh, jeez. Um... Oh, some other, I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, Brooke uh, gets the fabric for Karen's wedding dress, which is very, very sad because, and she ordered it the same day Keith died. I know. That's a lot to process. And um, also, too, I really like seeing Larry process some of the some of the stuff that's been going on. Yeah, because when was the last time we saw Larry? Do you know? Pro- probably a few episodes before Ellie died. Yeah, because we never actually saw him help Peyton with Ellie's death. Yeah. You know, dealing with that. I mm-hmm. I don't think we ever got any kind of scene. So now he's suddenly back. And I, I agree. Like, they needed to give this actor more work. I, they truly, truly <laughs> needed to. Because for the character's sake, for Peyton's sake, he needed to be more present. It just made more sense. The way they developed the character, too. He was a caring guy. Yeah, he is a very good, nice guy, too. Like, I feel like it would have been, like, this would have been more interesting if Peyton's dad was, like, an asshole and he was just, like, you know, he just came in every now and then. But they portray this relationship as being very good and very healthy. But us from the, as outsiders, like, this relationship really isn't that healthy. Your dad's, like, always out of town. You're staying alone in his house all the time. I know. And, you know, Larry does this whole thing where he's like, um, oh, I just wish I could protect you. And Peyton's like, oh, but you can't protect me every minute of every day. And he just says that, but but he wishes that he could. And I'm like, well, like, Larry, like, you could be a little bit more present in her life then. I mean, we go back to season one. Her dad was supposed to have, even though it was a different actor at the time, <laughs> her dad was, was supposed to have um, changed his job so that he wouldn't be away as much but he seems to be away just as much. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes no sense at all. Probably because the actor was uh, looking for more money and they just couldn't give him more work because we know how toxic the set was. <laughs> yeah. They haven't revealed like that on Drama Queens or anything. They just remarked how he's missing in certain key moments. <laughs> but not like why. Brynn, the, the dad, and... And then, oh, let me mention, Larry sees the boxes of Ellie's records. Mm. Put that in your back pocket for later. Yep. And they're like just kind of jammed into Peyton's closet. And he says, you know, Ellie would have wanted you to experience these. So For real. Yep. Back pocket for later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to talk more about that scene that happens outside the school when Lucas is like breaking down and he's like really angry. He's he's yelling at everybody, and I feel like everybody is very good at giving him space and, like, understanding, like, hey, like, you're not in the right mindset. Um, But he does, like, you know, yell at Brooke and says, like, Brooke, you wouldn't understand. You weren't there. And then that's when Brooke says, yeah, I may have not been in that school, but I still carry that day around just like everyone else. And then there's Rachel who comes in and says, I was there. And, she, and, you know, she doesn't use this as a way to shame him, but I feel like she could have. Like, she was actually there with the shooter himself. I mean, everybody experiences trauma differently, but she is definitely experiencing that in a different way, even though she, even if she's not necessarily talking about it outright. It's just like, you know, it is kind of 
unfair for Lucas to be judging everybody in this regard. But again, I understand, like, you know, you're not in the right mindset. Like, with some space, he would realize, like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have yelled at everybody like that. I think it was the whole comment from that guy inside about the shooter, and he was just making light of it all. And then that got Lucas angry, and then he was really taking... There's no... Who else to take the anger out on other than, like, the people who are trying to help him in that moment? Rachel, Brooke, like, they were all there trying to to help him. It kind of goes back to the previous scene, which we haven't talked about in depth yet, with with Peyton. How she says to him, like, you're like me. You, like, bottle it up inside and don't talk to people about your feelings. And I think that's a perfect example of what he's doing right now. And also, there's uh, there's Mouth, too, who tries to remind Lucas, because Lucas is like, someone died in that hallway, and Mouth is like, no, two people died in that hallway. And then that's what makes Lucas essentially nope the fuck out of there. Now, okay, so, like, I understand where Mouth is coming from. From everyone's perspective, all the characters' perspectives, like, us as the audience, we have a totally different perspective, because we know that Jimmy didn't kill anyone. Yes. But think about it. How would you feel in that moment? Because you think that Jimmy killed your uncle. And someone saying, like, two people died that day. It's almost like, I don't know. What am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying? I can't get the words out. But it's just like, it's kind of, in a way, math is being insensitive. Because, like... They think Jimmy did this horrible thing, you know? Yes. And he's still saying that to Lucas in this moment, like two people died that day. To me, it feels like a little insensitive because, you know, think about what they do with the media. They're always, when they're, these situations happen with shootings and whatnot, they're always so hyper-focused on the person who did it, you know? The villain, quote-unquote. Right. And... I don't know if it's necessarily appropriate in this moment. Like, it's true. Like, Jimmy committed suicide. That's terrible. But in reality, a lot of these shootings, they they end in a suicide, too. You're right. I don't know. Those are messy thoughts, but... No, I I understand. I, like, we're processing this in real time. And I feel like it's difficult for, for me specifically to divorce that because I know that Jimmy didn't kill Keith. Yeah. I know. That's the tough part. So I'm trying to put myself in that perspective, like, thinking, like, okay, Jimmy did kill Keith. Um, So, yeah, I could say that is a little bit unsensitive or insensitive. But this could also, like, illustrate the idea of anger, too, because Mouth is angry about Jimmy's death, and he's angry that other people are ignoring it. So there's, like, kind of a connection to the idea of anger there. I know. It's all so terrible. But in the moment, the characters do believe that Jimmy killed someone. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I don't know. Saying that to someone who's mourning their uncle being murdered, I don't know. It just seems like you're kind of erasing the fact of, like, what actually happened. Even though we know as the audience that it did it. Like, yeah. it's so, so difficult. <laughs> I know. And, like, that's something we, like, we, we even unpacked a little bit with Gavi in our, uh, one of our episodes on episode 16 it's just it's it's very complicated to divorce our to divorce my thoughts realize like okay but jimmy didn't actually do it so it's okay to have these feelings so uh but it is kind of sending like an unhealthy message about mass shooters in a way it's really 
It's a lot. It is. Oh, my God. Um, Do you want to talk about the scene in the library since we didn't get to that? Yes, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're they're in the dark. <laughs> I thought it was just like an interesting way. I know they're at a party, so I guess all everything is in the dark. But um, I don't know. It just kind of had like a moody tone to it. Like Peyton's just sitting in the library by herself in the dark. And Lucas happens to find her there. It's like they were drawn back to the place where all this trauma just occurred. <laughs> I don't know. I really, I don't understand it. And then I don't under, I don't really get the teasing either from Lucas. Do you understand that? Like he, like I get it's like making fun of it, but I mean with their history involving Brooke, I don't know if it's okay to like. We should not be making light of this yeah. at all. You know, like it, it's it, it's like it's okay to make light of it. Like that's how they're processing it. But if anything, I just think it's kind of mean. Yeah, yeah it is a little <laughs> mean because like Peyton's right. She thought she was going to die, and she kissed him and said, you know, she loved him, but she thought she was going to die. So, like, it's totally understandable what she did, I think. It could happen to anyone. You know, you don't know what you're going to say in a moment like that, when she was also, like, bleeding out, basically. (laughs) Your brain is not probably functioning normally. So, I don't know, I guess maybe Lucas was making light of it and teasing her to not really face, like, what that was i don't know maybe i I just think he was being mean to be honest yeah i thought it was mean too (laughs) like uh, like you know Peyton's like kind of crying she's so embarrassed and she is so like you know oh my god that was so cringe what i did and he's just coming in like i guess like in a way that could make somebody feel better but given in this context i don't think it really works it was weird and then basically lucas says that he loves brooke And then he goes into saying that he's sorry that he hasn't been there for Peyton because of her mom dying. And that's when Peyton says to him, you know, you hold stuff in just like I do. Like, you need to open up to Brooke. Because basically, you know, Peyton's just been through this trauma or two traumas with her mother and now with the shooting. And then Lucas is now dealing with the grief of his Uncle Keith. So, yeah, there's a lot to like kind of connect on there. And you shouldn't bottle up your emotions. He should talk to Brooke and open up to her. I think that was good advice. But to me, that scene, I don't know. It's kind of interesting how they did it. And for the record, uh, Hillary did say on Drama Queens that she liked this scene because she got to make fun of the previous episode because she didn't. She was not a fan of the scripts mm-hmm. in the library in episode 16. So it's it's good that, I guess it's good that she got to do that, but for me, it doesn't work. doesn't really read too well, because yeah. like you said, it's mean. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what do you think about the themes of anger, though? Like, what? how do you think this act connects to it, even loosely? Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that yet. Um, So I, I would say the Lucas, just Lucas in general. That last scene, I think, very illustrates it very strongly. He pushes the guy against the wall, and then, yeah, he was yelling at, at everyone at the end. He's he's just frustrated. He's angry and frustrated, because it's, it's a lot to process, and this isn't the way he wanted to grieve. He didn't want to grieve at a party, and that's okay. 
that is okay too and and honestly like you know and i get like the whole message of this party is is to say that like people grieve in their own way and lucas probably shouldn't be shaming them but i feel like also at the same time maybe rachel shouldn't have shot lucas a text saying hey there's a party here or she didn't even say here's a party there she just said ted me up high school be here blah 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 you need this yeah exactly like I feel like that's kind of like forcing the idea on him rather than say like hey there is a party we are going to be hosting it to like let people process grief in their own way come if you want to if you don't it's completely okay but instead they tell him this like when he's at the party you know so I Mm -hmm. feel like everybody could have given Lucas a lot more space because I feel like Lucas is portrayed as the villain for not giving everybody at the party space but I feel like at the same time, everybody needs to give him space as well. Yeah, I agree. I think everyone's entitled to process this in their own way, but also not, like you said, force it on anyone else because that mm-hmm. might not be their way. Yeah. I feel like Lucas was seeing the party as an insensitive thing, and that's kind of how personally I view it. But at the same time, like if people need to let loose to deal with the trauma of what just happened... I'm not going to judge them. Exactly, yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Caitlin, but during our high school graduation, there was a student graduated with us, and I'm not going to say this person's name for privacy reasons, but she lost her mother. I want to say it was the day before, maybe two days before graduation. Do you remember this? I vaguely remember this. Yeah, and... I remember, um, you know, just to give some more notes, like, our school had this, like, big party after graduation. Like, it was, like, this cruise ship, an all-night cruise ship. It's it's really cool. Project graduation. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's, like, a universal thing in the United States. But, yeah, that was, like, a that was a thing that we all got to go to. And I even remember, like, back then, and there was a bunch of other people thinking that, too. I just thought it was, like quote-unquote weird to see that like this girl who lost her mother she was still going to graduation and she was still at project graduation like you know like no big deal and i just thought to myself like that's kind of like like why would you do that but now like with some perspective and some age i realized like you know what like why couldn't she why was i why am i being so judgmental in my head yeah because she's you know she's still alive and these were her moment an important moment in her life why should she miss out on it? Maybe that was her thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, it's tough. That's that, that's a tough one. But, like, everyone has their own thing. Exactly. And just like you said, like, why, uh, why miss out on these, like, little moments here? Like, why miss out on, like, my graduation? So, and, like, and I get that. That's completely valid. So, you know what? She could do, what it, like, she could do whatever the fuck she wants to, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Would you like to talk about fear? That sounds like such a <laughs> philosophical question. <laughs> it does. <laughs> sure. Do you want to summarize? <laughs> yeah, sure. So this kicks off in Lucas's room. That's when Skills says that, oh, I talked to the boys. We're not going to Jimmy's funeral. And then that's when Lucas and Skills have like this philosophical conversation about heaven, which we'll dive into a little bit deeper later. We see Nathan and Haley dance. And they essentially, like, try to unpack, like, is it okay to be happy right now? And then we see Dan enter Karen's house, and Karen just confronts Dan, saying, like, oh, like, you know, shouldn't you feel guilty for not repairing your relationship with Keith? And then Dan's like, oh, maybe I'll do it with Lucas. And then Karen gets really mad, very rightfully snippy with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is when Dan 
for apropos of nothing, tells Karen that Lucas rescued him from the dealership fire. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. <laughs> and then that's when uh, Karen confronts Lucas, says some pretty hurtful things to him, and that's when the act ends. <laughs> yeah, there's some wild stuff in here. Yeah, but I, I say first, like, let's talk about, like, what do you think this deals with the 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 uh, the theme of fear? How do you think this deals with that? Um, I think the conversation with Skills and Lucas about That's what I said, about so. heaven or the afterlife, and just just them questioning, like, what kind of heaven could include someone like keith and jimmy at the same time you know what what would that place look like what would it be like and i think they're Mm. pondering about all of this just shows like there's fear there of the unknown of what what's happened to keith what's happened to jimmy and i thought it was interesting what lucas said that like would heaven basically hold it against jimmy for doing what he did Mm-hmm. Even though they they admit skills, I think skills is the one who says it. Like Jimmy was sick. Yeah, and Lucas is the one who questions that, saying like, "Hey, would uh, would heaven hold that against Jimmy?" And then if so, then Jimmy's a victim too. I thought that was like a really well written scene, and I I'm I'm really happy that skills was the one to have that with Lucas. I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was a very powerful scene, and it was it's unlike. I can't really think of another scene that really talks about heaven in One Tree Hill. Like, even in later seasons. Yeah, I don't Like, this was a really deep moment, and I'm glad these two had it together, because I think it made sense. I'm glad Skills got some screen time in this really important scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Got to see him do some serious heavy lifting with traumatic work, too. I know. Yeah, there there was no real... I think he said one little humorous thing at the beginning, but it was it was deep, and it was yeah. You're talking about the moment when uh, Lucas asks Skills if there's a heaven, and Skills that makes a joke saying like, "Well, I think there's a heaven with uh, Chrome Gates and Freaky Angels, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe the Pearly White Gates." And, like that was cute. That was that was great for yeah. Skills. Yeah. You know, it's on brand for him. So Antoine Tanner does a good job of like. Shifting from, like, a humorous moment to, like, serious at the same time. Like, he does it effortlessly, I think. He is. He doesn't get enough enough credit, I think, sometimes. He doesn't get enough of the serious scenes, but when he does have them, like, he shifts between those two different tones, like, really well. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, back to what I was saying about them pondering heaven and would it hold it against Jimmy even though he was he was mentally ill. I think when someone dies, these are the types of questions that people naturally ask, no matter, like, the circum... Like, all the circumstances, obviously, are different. In this case, they were wondering, you know, like, could this bad person who was also sick go to heaven still? Um, yeah. Even if you don't believe in heaven or the afterlife, like, people ask similar questions anyway. Like, why did this happen? How could this happen? He was a good person, you know... He didn't deserve this. His family didn't deserve this. Like, why would someone's life end so short, you know, when they had so much more to give this world? Like, these are all questions that doesn't have to necessarily do with, like, you know, your religious beliefs. But I I think they're just natural things, like, as a human, you wonder about. And I think that this scene really does show the fear part. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And and as we navigate through this, we still have uh we still have three more stages to go through. I'm starting to wonder if this episode, if the the stages of grief are meant to illustrate Lucas's processing of Jimmy's death, because yeah. right now he's fearing like, okay, where is where is Jimmy? Like, where is Jimmy going right now? Because yes, in the previous uh, acts, he did acknowledge he murdered my uncle. Like, I don't want to hear about him, et cetera, et cetera. And now he's like, oh, like, well, Jimmy was sick. Like, you know, would heaven hold that against him? So I feel like this is his way of trying to ask the question, like, where is Jimmy right now? Where is his soul? Yeah. So that's just my theory that I'm going with right now. And then we'll go through the other stages and we'll see if, like, you know, this holds anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. But again, not saying that framing the episodes around these stages is a good idea, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um. And, you know, again, to go back to the idea of, like, you know, everybody can grieve in their own way. We see that happen with Nathan and Haley. Like, they're happy right now. They're very much in love with each other. And is that okay? Yeah, it's like, I I think it is okay. And I like yeah, that I, they I, I showed so, this in the episode. But I, I do think that <laughs> Nailey is over the top sappy in this episode. <laughs> and I, that's my hot take. I don't know if you agree with me, but it was a little, it started to get a little, like, cringy, like, oh my, it's just too much. Oh, I love it. I'm eating the, I'm eating the fuck out of it right now. And you know, I like Savvy, but sometimes it goes a little overboard with them. There, I, I love, love Nailey. You know I love Nailey. Yes, it, I know. It, it reached a little over the top, this episode, personally. I'm, I'm okay with it. I don't know why I'm okay with it, but I am. Just, they were like, they had long scenes and several of them like they were in bed and then they were dancing and then they were in, in the sprinklers and i feel like <laughs> it's not possible to be this much in love yeah <laughs> it's over the top <laughs> but i like i'm okay with it i will not apologize I mean, you know what this couple has been through the rainer for the past few episodes or the, the past two seasons and it's just nice to see them like okay there is no fighting whatsoever yeah great they didn't fight in the last episode then there's no insecurity in the last episode but that's not only because they're in the same room with an active shooter so <laughs> this is the first episode we're like we're allowed to have them be happy and it is like a it is a light at the end of the tunnel for a pretty dark episode that deals with the idea of grief yeah i agree and i think this does give some good representation because I think that's also a natural question that humans ask. Like when you're in the middle of grieving someone and you have a moment of happiness, you know, is that okay? It feels like wrong in the moment because you're like, why am I smiling? Why am I laughing at this joke when all that's going on? But you know, that is, that's what life is. (laughs) Weirdly enough, you can shift from, laughing until your stomach hurts to you know a tragedy could happen the next day like it's so interesting how those two emotions can be so close together mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to cry every day you can and there's nothing wrong with it but you are allowed to find like these little peaceful moments and there's nothing wrong with that if you do that and i also think that the tragedy that occurred and the fact that Neil, Haley and Nathan were both in the Tudor Center together and they were experiencing all of this together, I think that showed them, you know, that life is short and, like, they care about each other. It basically just reminded of them of the fact that, you know, they want to be together 
and they're not going to waste any time. So it's like a natural progression, I think, or natural reaction, at least, to to what happened in 316. I agree. All right, do you want to talk about what happened between Dan and Karen and Karen and Lucas, I should say? Yeah. So Dan keeps having these visions or dreams of a young Keith, and that's keeping him up at night because it's like a constant thing he's experiencing. So then he decides, for whatever reason, to go visit Karen. <laughs> Like, she would want to see him. He saw that the light was on, Caitlin. Uh He just, yeah. (laughs) I saw that the light was on. That's totally, like, the truth, obviously. I feel like he's the last person that Karen would want to see. (laughs) Even without not knowing (laughs) what actually happened in the previous episode, I still think he's the last person. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But anyway... Yeah, what I don't know why Dan had to tell Karen that, like, oh, like, you know, he rescued me. What what good did that do <laughs> at the end of the day? I think it's interesting that this was all revealed in this scene. I get, like, well, Karen was all kind of feisty. She was saying, you know, you had time to repair your relationship with your brother and you chose not to. And for what? What, what was the reason in the end? You know, I, I get her reaction when he comes to visit. And then he has to say that line about, oh, maybe I have a second chance with Lucas. And it's like, come on, dude. Like, this is not the time. (laughs) And then that's when he reveals, that's when he decides to reveal about the, you know, Lucas saving him out of the dealership fire. And then Karen's like putting all this together. Like, my child risked his life not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. And I get the anger there. But the fact that Karen puts the blame on Lucas and says that line sorry isn't gonna bring him back is it and the way she says it I can't even I could not even copy the tone of that like she delivers that and it's haunting how she says it to him it's downright chilling and like (laughs) and Chad Michael Murray is a it's no secret he's not the greatest actor in the world even like when he's crying in his scene I don't 100% buy it but like that moment when he like looks up at Karen Mm -hmm. after she says that like that breaks my heart yeah, it's oof. a thousand percent, and I don't, I don't under, I don't necessarily, I'm not angry with Karen for saying that. Like it is like upsetting to say that to your child, but I think this is kind of natural. She's not in the right mindset. And with this, this I feel like doesn't fit with fear. This this fits with guilt because now Lucas feels that guilt, right? Or <laughs> or it might fit better with anger because Karen is so angry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So wait. Let's let's think about that now. Like, would this have to? I don't think the scene fits with fear. I I couldn't explain it. I mean, <laughs> you know, Karen Karen could be trying to like disguise her feelings about. I guess she was fearing for Lucas's life. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, she's kind of <laughs> she's kind of fearing that idea rather than, and she's using that to like disguise the fact that like Keith died a little bit. Mm-hmm. We are processing this in real time, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, there was a lot of stumbling over our words for the past couple seconds. I don't know. Like, do I want to keep that in? I'm not sure. Yes, we'll say It's real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's just show that we're human and we're trying to figure this out. It's not clear. But, it's still not clear, but whatever. There's a uh, loose connection there. She feared for his life, but I still think she's guilt. She's making him feel guilty, and I feel like that. And it, it is, I guess it is appropriate to transition to the next act. Yeah, yeah. 
for, for guilt because that's the last seed in the fear chapter. So that's like, true. let's go into guilt, I guess. Let's do it. Guilt includes Rachel and Mouth. They have this long conversation about like Rachel claims that it's not Mouth's fault for what Jimmy did. And they're talking about like rigid friend groups and will that ever change? Brooke gives Nelly the apartment key. So she's handing that over. Uh, Nathan pulls up the tape from the Tudor Center. And there's like a whole montage of scenes that's going on that really kind of shows everyone breaking down and, and dealing with their grief. Nathan pulls out the tape from the Tudor Center? I don't remember that part. No? Yeah, he takes the... Remember, Jimmy told him to take the... Oh, the tape! The tape. Like, the, the, okay. I was thinking, like, the videotape. And <laughs> no. I'm like... Okay. Sorry. Yeah, the, I, just... I guess I should have made it clear. The, the tape, the line that yes, had to put the down. the line that Jimmy put across to divide them in the previous episode. Okay. And that's Sorry. when you see... Like, you see him doing that, and then you see, like, a whole sequence of images of people... Karen breaking down, and just, like, a bunch of people... Mm. And their emotions. And then uh, we have the scene with Mouth and Rachel slow dancing. Rachel kisses him. And then she tells Mouth that she released the time capsule. And Mouth walks away and says, I don't like you anymore. Mm-hmm. And before we get into some of these scenes, I also want to note that there is a song that spans the entire act. It's called Light on My Shoulder by Susie Sue. And this is one of the only times I ever noticed there's like an entire act like that spans an entire song. Oh, was so it? That was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It was the entire song. Wow. I know it took up a good portion of it. Yep. Uh, it's the entire act. Um, but yeah, so uh, guilt. Let's talk about it. <laughs> well, I think um, the biggest connection and really the only connection I have is Rachel confessing to Mouth. I, I would say that, and I would also say Mouth is feeling the guilt about not being there for Jimmy, and this is why Jimmy did this to himself. Totally agree. Um, but yeah, those are the only two connections I have. <laughs> now let's go with like my original theory. Like, What does this have to do with uh, Lucas's grief over Jimmy? We do see him cry, mm-hmm. and this is like after um, having that conversation with Karen, so we, we could say that even though we don't see a lot of him in this particular act... He is still experiencing guilt. Yeah, because we don't see him again until the next one, which is depression, which that makes sense. But yeah, I feel like we should have definitely seen more of him in this this stage. Yeah, <laughs> but the psalm was too short. We couldn't have another scene. I guess so. <laughs> this is something I want to ask Lindsay Wolfenstein. Like, you know what? I, like, if we ever do get the chat with Lindsay Wolfenstein, I want to like ask, like, okay, like, how did you pick a psalm that perfectly fit an act of the episode? Mm-hmm. So. Let's put this in our back pocket. Okay. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, I thought the conversation between Rachel and Mouth was interesting, which is how the act starts out. And Rachel is, you know, she has told him in previous episodes, like, it's not your fault that, like, you don't have to feel responsible just because Jimmy doesn't have friends or, like, you grew apart. You know, it, it's not on you. And she tells him once again, you know, this, this, all that happened is not your fault. Like, you didn't do this. And Mouth just wonders, like, you know, how he kind of wonders how, like, you know, schools are made up of all of these, he calls them, like, rigid social groups. Like, people go with other people that are like them. And he's like, will this ever end? And Rachel's honest, and I think her 
I think her response is true. Like, no, it probably will never change because it's human nature. And I think she's right. It's like the sad truth. There's certain things that won't change. And I think that is probably one of them. Mm-hmm. And she says, but if you want it to change, then change it. I'll help you. Mouth says, how? And Rachel just says, dance with me. Which is a weird response. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a matter of, like, you know, people from, like, two different, quote-unquote, two different cliques yeah. coming together. But, like, I'm sorry, but it is kind of weird to think that, like, oh, Mouth is, like, the loser. Like, Mouth is, is not a loser whatsoever. Like, no. He is friends with all, like, the quote-unquote popular people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I feel like they need to stop with the whole mouth being, like, low on the totem pole, if you will. You know what I mean? Like, he, like he's the loser and everyone else is popular. Like, he thinks that about himself. And, like, we as the viewers are supposed to think that, too? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> is it just because he doesn't, like, look like a model like Chad Michael Murray or James Lafferty? Like, is that what they're trying to say? But, like, Lee Norris is not by any means whatsoever no so i don't i don't understand i don't get it it's like how in movies and tv shows like they try to make some beautiful woman (laughs) look like a nerd or someone who is just doesn't you know take care of themselves or whatever and it's like so not believable (laughs) She wears glasses and she wears a ponytail. She is hideous. There's no way she could be beautiful at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then there's the stunning transformation, which, you know, isn't too big of a transformation because they were already beautiful to begin with. So dumb. Poor mouth. Yeah, it's just like, I, I don't like this idea that the show is trying to tell us this, but like, reality, like, Mouth has a lot of friends, mm-hmm. like, regardless. Just because, like, the quote unquote hot girls don't want to date him. And I feel like that's very, that's very incel ish in a way. True. Um, but yeah, because, because, I mean, I feel like at the end of the day, is that like, yeah, like, okay, they're, they're being like, uh, separated into like the pretty and the popular and like the, I don't know, the uggos, let's just say that for a better <laughs> word. But 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 here's the deal, like, you know, Mouth is still friends with all these people, because you know what, they have, they all have something in common, they all like basketball. And you know what, that's pretty cool, you know? And you can find, like, you know, commonalities with people, regardless of, like, how, you know, if, if you think they're prettier than you, or whatever. Oh, for sure. I just agree that, with what Rachel was saying, like, I think groups will always exist, but I think there are some people that definitely move between the groups, you know? There's always going to be social groups. Unfortunately, like, she's right. It is human nature. But I think, like, there are certain people that will shift between them. And I feel like that's cool. I think Mouth is one of them. Like, he has his river court crew, and he has the basketball, like, the basketball team people. It doesn't, it doesn't make, it just, we can't buy into that anymore, that he's a nerd, or whatever you want to <laughs> call it. Exactly. I, I feel like there is a lot of, like, to uh, unpack when it comes to, like, you know, people who are clicky, and, you know, they don't necessarily, like, let people in. That is, like, a problem, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's a problem that Mouth is having. Mouth is being welcomed into yeah. so many different social groups, <laughs> so it, it doesn't work for me. And I am not saying that I agree with clicks. 
and these groups. Absolutely not. But I think they will exist to some extent for sure. Right. But I think mouth is being embraced by everybody. So I wouldn't even say like, you know, like, oh God, like, you know, there's so many clicks. Like, I don't really buy that message in this show. This show doesn't even, doesn't really particular, particularly like portray like quote unquote losers, the chess club and like those other clubs here and there, you know? Yeah, no, they don't. Like everybody seems pretty welcoming, I think though. I can't really think of specific people back in high school, but there were definitely people who move between groups and they they were well liked but they weren't necessarily like the popular kid i'd say i was one of those people yeah (laughs) yeah i think you you probably did move move amongst i did not i famously throughout high school i did not have group friends yeah i had like friends like individuals i always said like if i were to ever have like a party like nobody would know each other (laughs) everybody would know me but nobody would know each other. That's hilarious. Yeah, you know? (laughs) I I have, like, you know, like, since I've grown up, I have developed more, like, you know, group friends. In high school, I did not have any groups whatsoever, personally. Yeah. See, I had a group in high school, for sure. You're still friends with them to this day. Yeah, Many of them, at least. (laughs) A good majority, which is amazing. Just like, Caitlin, that was 14 years ago. Oh, God. Can you not, like, remind me about I, I that? Like, let's just I'm not. Sorry. Let's, I'm in denial, <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> I'm in the first stage of grief. <laughs> we, we, we gotta go through the stages, okay, denial, and then l- l- get, get angrier, get angrier Jeremy, now. <laughs> don't you dare bring it up now at all. I don't want to hear fear. it. What's fear? <laughs> because you fear? Because you fear the guilt? <laughs> I am not acting this out right now. <laughs> We could have planned a bit for this, but we did not. Anyway. All right. We have gone off on a tangent, so let's yes. get back to it. Um, okay. The, the, that's After that, the Tudor Setter scene happens. It's just kind of symbolic how Nathan rips off the tape. Like, cool. And it kind of fits well with, like, the previous scene. Like, you know what? There aren't going to be any more clicks. Let's rip this off. Yeah, you're right. It's true. I didn't even think of that. It does fit with what Rachel and Mouth were talking about. It pairs very well, for sure. Also, Brooke gives uh, Nathan Haley the key, but, like, th- did she have any plan, like, where she was going to stay? I know. We find out later that she's going to move in with Peyton, but, like, at but this she, point... That's a surprise to her, even, you know? At this point, she didn't even know, so, like... Is her stuff still there? Did she just decide this off the cuff? I have so many questions. I mean, she could have let them move in and, like, stayed there with them until she got a place or something. Like, there could have been some kind of, <laughs> you know, workaround to this. But no, I guess she was just going to not be anywhere. And then better, yeah, like, at the end of the episode, too, like, we know the party starts at 10 p.m., right? Because that's what we got from the text. Yeah. And then, like, who knows how long the party was? Like, maybe two hours or something like that? And Larry is just, like putting shelves together and like Peyton has no idea that he's putting shelves like how long was she out of the house for and how late is Larry staying up and how fast can he make (laughs) shelves and attach them to the wall (laughs) yeah like if I was Peyton I'd be like Peyton like it's like where's my bed like when are they and and they said oh I'm gonna put two signals in here when are those beds going to move there (laughs) because if I was Peyton I'm like I want to go to bed yeah it's all time has no meaning once again (laughs) We're just supposed to accept the fact, like, okay, they don't have a place to sleep, and they don't need to sleep, it's it's fine. <laughs> that was the acceptance stage, so they were just going with it. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so are, we say, are you saying that we should accept that time has yes. no meaning in Tree Hill? That's exactly what I'm thinking. Okay, I guess I I, I think we have to move on from it. 
Because <laughs> it only gets worse next season. We're still going to call it out because it's hilarious. <laughs> but maybe we can accept it, I guess. Fine. And then Nathan rips off the tape, and then that's when we have the montage. Dan's in the cemetery. We see Lucas is crying in the car. Karen finds Keith's uh, petition for adoption. And then we see Karen cry as a, there's like a split screen where we see Brooke, and then we see Peyton, and then we see Nathan and Haley in the Tudor Center. Then we see the flashbacks of Keith and Karen hugging. So, um, they're like, Karen's reminiscing on that. And then we also see Lucas crying. And here it is. Like, they're all grieving in their own way. But the one thing that's linking them all together is the fact that they are all sad. But they're processing it differently, I think. See, I feel like this episode would have been so much better if they leaned into that rather than try to pigeonhole the five stages of grief in there. It doesn't, ugh, it doesn't work because this is this is the guilt section. <laughs> I don't, yes. I don't think that montage fits with it. It just shows them, you know, sad. Mm-hmm. You know what I w- would have liked to see because we get the little little flashback scene with um, Keith and Karen hugging in the montage. I would have liked a longer mm-hmm. flashback scene as a way to honor Keith and Karen in this episode. I would have liked that. I'm a sucker for a flashback scene, though, so. I would say we Oh, I am such a sucker for a flashback scene. When's on right, I think. I am a sucker for a flashback scene. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. Okay, okay we can... I, I was about to reveal some stuff, but, like, I don't even know. Spoiler segment or another episode. We'll, like, we'll later this that. season, there's a flashback yeah. montage, and I'm just like, it's my favorite thing in the world. Uh, that one's fine. Okay, we're not gonna get too deep into that. <laughs> okay, um... The act ends with Rachel revealing to Mouth that she was the one who unleashed a time capsule, and now she is experiencing the guilt. But the, the, the funny thing about this, though, is that, like, and this might be part of their way of pigeonholing these little storylines into these acts, it ends with, like, Rachel reassuring Mouth, like, Mouth, it's not your fault, and then it ends with her being like, oh, actually, it is my fault, not yours. Yeah. But how how much more interested would it have been if this spanned the entire episode? Like, what if, like, Rachel reassured Mouth at the beginning of the episode, said, hey, it wasn't your fault, only for this big revelation to happen, where she admits, like, oh, Mouth, it's not your fault. It's mine. So it is interesting to think that they actually, you know, they went through that journey with Rachel for the duration of this act, rather than throughout an episode. Yeah, that's true. It's like a mini storyline. But I feel like that's prob- this is probably the strongest act for that reason, though, if we are going to go through the journey with Rachel about. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit more cohesive than the other ones, I would say. I did like the fear one, though. I like it, too, yeah. I think I like that one a little bit more. But I, I see what you're saying. Like, it started and ended, basically, with Rachel mm-hmm. dealing with some kind of guilt, whether it was internally or then she finally confesses it. Right. And we're not even, and I'm not even, when I said, like, she admitted that it was her fault, like, I don't necessarily think this was Rachel's fault either. It wasn't, like, bad to unleash the time capsule and, like, unleash the, the secrets, yes. But she could not have anticipated this happening. No. But her actions had a ripple effect, that's for sure. Right. Let's talk about depression. I don't know why I said that so cheerfully, but here we are. Oh my god. <laughs> so, did I say the last one or did I you? Think I think I did remember. the last one. Okay. Well, okay, so whatever. I'll do uh I'll do depression. It begins at Karen's cafe. This is when 
Nathan and Haley tell Lucas this wasn't his fault, despite what Karen said to them. Then we go to the school. This is when Lucas initially looks for Brooke. Then he runs into Whitey. Whitey comforts Lucas, saying, like, hey, you should be the man that Keith expected you to be. And then it goes to the cemetery, where Dan screams into Keith's gravestone, saying, like, you, um, you started this war. I just finished it. Then spits on the grave. And then we get a little montage to the phrase how to save a life i have some things to say about that later (laughs) um nathan haley enter the apartments we also go to the sawyer residence where peyton comes in she sees that pete from freak out boy is outside Um, (laughs) larry just lets her go in again this is all happening one night like they go to the party at 10 p.m and then somehow she goes in and then has time to make out with pete whatever and then we, uh, and then it goes to the school, and then we see Whitey is cleaning up, and he's cleaning up the party mm-hmm. after the youngsters. So how does this deal with depression? Well, I think the op- the opening scene here with Lucas really being hard on himself and feeling that guilt. Based- yeah, guilt. Yeah, I know Keyword, it's guilt, guilt, but at the same time, it is it is depression. Like he he feels depressed because mm-hmm. his mom just said those terrible things to him, and now it's kind of eating away at him. And I'm glad. I am very glad that Haley and Nathan were the ones to come to to the cafe and find him and tell him that, you know, this is absolutely not your fault. You were only trying to save, go in and help save someone, which was Peyton, just like Keith was trying to do, which was trying to save Lucas. But, you know, I'm glad they were able to tell him that. But at the same time, I do understand, like, why Lucas feels guilty, because he did go into the school. And if he didn't go into the school, Keith probably wouldn't have went in. But mm-hmm. he's been very unfair to himself. But it's not. Ways, yeah, you though. can't. Keith made that decision to go in. You know, yeah. he's an adult. And hearing that from his mother too, I feel like he's really yeah. internalized in that. Uh, this just made me think of. Do you remember there was a moment in Drama Queens? It was for this episode actually. Joy was talking about her daughter, and she didn't get too much into the details. But they had a family pet. And that family pet died. A, it was not a natural death. And she actually did blame her daughter for it. And there was a moment, like, right when they're fresh in the grieving process, where, like, her daughter was asking, like, is, Mom, is, is this my fault? And Joy had a moment where she said, she wanted to just say, like, of course it is. It is your fault. But then she realized, like, maybe right now is not the time to bring it up. Like, let's grieve right now. And then maybe later on, let's talk about some of the responsibility and things like that even though like i don't uh, you know in that situation yeah it may have been it may have been joyce's daughter's faults like you know maybe like you know they left the dog outside in the middle of the road or something like that like who knows i, I don't they didn't reveal the context behind it but in this situation is, yeah but in this situation it's definitely not lucas's fault there's no like conversation about responsibility or anything like mm-hmm. that but i still think you know the message still holds true that the Karen needed some space to grieve and talk and think about it to herself privately mm-hmm. before pointing a finger at Lucas. But also, I blame Dan because Dan's the one who brought up what didn't need to be brought up in that moment, which was about the dealership fire. And that oh, that yeah. is what triggered Karen to then go, oh, wait, my son recently went into an active shooter situation and he also went into a fire. So like... She already knew about the shooting thing and was, I guess, willing to just overlook that, you know, because she didn't bring it up yet. But with this added component, you know, finding out about that was like it all kind of 
I guess, just build up. So I, I'm going to blame Dan just because it's fun to blame Dan. And uh... <laughs> I can agree. But, feel you know, feelings are messy. People are complicated. And nobody is going to be like a people are not going to be the best versions of themselves right now, understandably. That is something that we've definitely seen in like TV shows and movies before. You know, someone is so is grieving and is very upset about something and then says something they regret. Mm hmm. Because you're out of, you're kind of just like out of your mind. You know, you're not, you're not yourself. You're not thinking clearly. And, and that's not even just grief. Like when you have some emotion and it's like over, it's taking you over. Like let's say you're angry about something or upset about something. You know, that's a moment where you could say something that you easily, you could say something that you regret. Right. Everyone's done it. <laughs> I know I have, so... I have too as well, yeah. Like, I went through a uh, pretty, like, bad situation recently without, like, getting too much into details, but, like, th- there was, like, a period of two days where, like, I didn't respond to texts from, like, anyone, and uh, included, included you, Caitlin, actually. <laughs> but, like, yeah. you, know, you understood, you gave me space, you know, and I didn't, like, try to, like, acknowledge it by saying, like, oh, so sorry, like, I didn't respond to you or anything like that. I think you understood at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of those things right there yeah also it should be noted that in this scene we see lucas's prediction it uh, and it is confirmed this year i'll try again with brooke and that's what he wrote in episode two because i kind of left a little cliffhanger earlier in the mm-hmm. season like who was going to finish that sentence you're right you're right i forgot about that yeah i remember i, I think uh you actually said like oh i'll try again with brooke i'm like caitlin they didn't reveal that though <laughs> <laughs> and like this is a spoiler <laughs> They didn't reveal it. That's fairly true. But I remember this being like a bombshell. Not, not like a bombshell, but I remember like the confirmation of this happening. Like in real time as we were watching this episode. You know, this is like a big deal for the fandom. Like, oh shit, this is it. Yeah, because Haley says, look, your prediction did come true. You got together with Brooke. What was the prediction that, that Lucas wanted to take back again? Is just being being a family with Keith? I know. I don't think it was a prediction for. I don't think it was a prediction for this year. I don't think he wrote it down. But there was a prediction from years ago. I remember where he said, "Mom and Uncle Keith will get married." Okay, that's what it was. But yeah, I think he he may have wrote that in like seventh grade or something like that. So unfortunately, that is a prediction that's not going to come true, and that is sad. And that's something he has to unfortunately accept. Yeah, because it's always like the question, you know, what could have been. With Keith, so much was lost for Karen and Lucas, the whole family component of it, yeah. But that doesn't mean you still can't be happy and you still can't have things that bring you joy. Like, look, look what happened with Brooke. Like, things are still good with Brooke. Yes, what happened to your uncle is terrible. However, let's not forget the fact that there you do have other great things in your life and don't lose sight of them because he has been kind of avoiding Brooke throughout this episode. And I I agree. That's a nice reminder, but I also have to just counter that. I I think toxic positivity is a thing and (laughs) trying to get someone to look on the bright side when they just need to be in their emotions and feel what they feel. Some it's not always, it's not usually actually the right approach to just say like, look on the bright side and look at all that you have in the world and I agree it is a good reminder at times but when someone is so deeply depressed like Lucas is right now and and feeling the guilt too like I feel like he just needs to feel it and kind of get through that 
Right. Yeah, I a thousand percent understand like the idea of toxic positivity. Cause yeah, toxic positivity. That's like a whole thing with me because yeah. I just sometimes people can just be a bit much, and it's like that's not what I need to hear right now. You know. Yeah, like look on the yeah, I get I get what you're saying. Like look on the bright side, but I feel like in this particular scene, I think what Haley was really trying to accomplish is that like, hey, look, yeah, you won't get you, you won't get this goal. You won't get the fact that like your parents, your your parents. I mean, he I mean, really yeah, they are Keith. Yeah, Keith and Car- Keith is, a, is his parent. We should say, um, like you're you're not going to get this, but it doesn't mean that it does not mean that life is over. Yeah, yeah, I think that is definitely a, an important reminder. Yeah. And maybe, like, there could have been some more nuance saying, like, hey, like, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for for a long Mm -hmm. time, if not forever. But, like, let's remember, like, you know, your life is not over. Yeah. Because of this really hard period in your life right now. And you can have, like, a bad thing that happens and a good thing that happens at the same time. Like, they can be, you know, simultaneous. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So. (laughs) Ugh. This is, a lot, this is deep stuff, Jeremy. It really is. <laughs> this is draining me. As, <laughs> as I said before we even started recording this, though, like, you know, we usually have the best discussions of not great episodes. Yeah. And I knew this would be a, a, one of them. Yeah, as I was rewatching it today, I was like, oh, there's a, I feel like there's a lot that I have to say about this. So, uh-huh. <laughs> I want to talk about the Whitey conversation. No. Yeah, so after that conversation with Peyton, Lucas is triggered to go to the school to look for Brooke. And this is when he uh <laughs> he sees Whitey and Whitey is opening the keg, and that is just perfect. It brought me so much joy. I know. He's like, it doesn't matter, like, I'm not here. I guess kids getting drunk in school beats kids getting killed. Yeah, and then he admits he wanted to talk to Lucas, but he's been busy crying like a baby. Yeah. Did you notice, too, that earlier in the episode at Keith's funeral, or more so at the funeral reception, like, he's in that scene. He just doesn't talk. Oh, was he? All the other... Yeah. I didn't notice that until my second watch that I did a few hours ago. He He's in that scene, and he's just completely silent. And the rest of the characters are talking. Everybody else in that scene talks, except for him. And I feel like that's, like, kind of, uh, that's kind of interesting to think, like, hey, Whitey has been present. He has been, like, there. He has been grieving. Yeah. But... He's been busy crying like a baby, as he says. Yeah. And now he's actually addressing his emotions. Because Whitey has to have a, so many emotions, too. I mean, this was like one of his best friends. I I mean, it, it was he was a student and then he became, you know, as later in the later years, became his friend. Yeah. And we learned that Keith actually comforted Whitey after Whitey lost Camilla. Yeah, I want to read that whole quote, actually, because uh, I'm so, just yes. going to preface that it's my favorite quote of the episode. It's a whole long <laughs> monologue, but it's my favorite one. Oh, go on, read it. I'm going to tell you something. When my wife died, things got pretty dark there for a while. Nobody could talk to me. And then one of my former players, kid may have been the worst player I've ever had or coach I've ever coached, waded into that darkness and pulled me to safety. Kid's name was Keith Scott. He said, Coach, I know you want some answers, but what is the right answer? Because there is no answer. It's just life. Just life. Lucas, be the man that Keith taught you to be. Anything less will make this a much greater tragedy than it already is. So emotional. Like, one of the most emotional Mm -hmm. scenes of 
the episode, I thought. It's absolutely wonderful. And again, give Barry Corbin more to do on this fucking show. I know. I like, I watched the scene twice, or actually more than twice, because I wrote the quote down, so I had to like rewatch it a few times. And um, yeah, it just made me really think about that, like how we could use Whitey so much more and how like vulnerable Whitey is so meaningful. And I loved these scenes with Whitey and Lucas. And it made me think of that photo from the, you know how they have those conventions in Wilmington? Yeah. And there was a photo circulating, and I have it as a screenshot, of Barry Corbin and Chad Michael Murray. And, like, Barry Mm. Corbin has his hands on Chad's face. (laughs) And I think Chad posted (laughs) and said, I love this man. It's just, like, they had such chemistry. And this scene was such a reminder of that. I couldn't get that image out of my head. That was sweet. That was really sweet when I saw I know. that. Like, this is adorable. It's like the cutest thing, because they had so much good stuff in this show, those two characters especially. They could have had even more. Like, I wanted more from it, but they have a lot of good ones. And this is a great, great scene. Oh, absolutely. Um, Not so great scene, though. <laughs> This is when uh, Dan is in the cemetery. He's, he screams into toward the ghost of his dead brother. He says, like, you started this war. I just finished it. And then spits on his grave. And then he tells, like, Keith, like, oh, you know what? I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. But during the next montage, you see he's in bed. He's obviously not sleeping like a baby. <laughs> and to me, see, this doesn't show depression. This shows guilt. He's, like, overcompensating. So it shows guilt to me. And it shows, obviously, anger, too. And denial. Yeah, and denial on what he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact that Keith started the war. And remember, Dan still thinks Keith tried to kill him. Which is because Dan hired a woman to make Keith fall in love with her. Which resulted because Keith slept with Dan's ex-wife, we should say, a wife that they're separated from. <laughs> but... It's uh, the the mental gymnastics this man is going through. I know. It just doesn't make sense because Keith didn't start the war. Oh, it's just terrible. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so speaking of that montage, like Dan's in bed, we also have a montage to the song by the fray, How to Save a Life, which I want to talk a little bit about the history of this song. So you watch Grey's Anatomy around this era, right? Oh, I know. This is a Grey's Anatomy song. <laughs> That's the only thing <laughs> yeah. I think of. And I love, you know, I used to really love the fray. I saw them several times live. This is a great album. Such a oh, moment yeah. of like when we were in high school. Oh, yes, absolutely. This album is absolute fucking fire (laughs) that the song features on. But, like, this song, like, really blew up because of Grey's Anatomy. It was on on one episode, and then there was a music video after that. It just, it completely blew up because of Grey's Anatomy. And it was on, like, the promos. It was, like, every promo, that's the song that played. Even if you didn't watch Grey's Anatomy, like, you would know. You would know the song because of Grey's Anatomy, even if you just saw the commercials. You're like, oh, I know this song, yeah. Um, but I want to know that this episode premiered on, on Grey's Anatomy. It played during one of the episodes. It was season two, episode 21, entitled Superstition. And that episode aired March 19th, 2006, just 10 days before this episode aired. Just kind of funny to think about. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> so they had to have yes. chosen it all at the same time and just didn't know. 
Right. Like, there's there's no way they'd probably put that in just because of... I know the song blew up, but it also, like, was used a while after. Yeah. No, they didn't choose it because, like, oh, this is popular Grey's yeah. Anatomy. Let's use it on Trey I don't think it was, like, like no, that popular yet. And then it just became... It then yeah. it became a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just funny, like, right around the same time, like, you know, 10 days apart, it's on two... I mean, I would argue that Grey's Anatomy was much more popular than One Tree Hill during this era, but... Oh, yeah. It's just funny to think that they were, like, that close together. That's so wild. I just assumed that this was after... I don't know. I just had assumed this this was after... Like, well after Grey's Anatomy, for some reason. Nope. <laughs> and that's why <laughs> they probably apart, used it. Baby. Oh, I love it. <laughs> but during this montage, uh, we see... Nathan Haley enter the apartment. They see the the wedding dress fabric that's now bed sheets. I don't see how that can be comfortable to sleep on. I don't know. I think it's supposed to be the comforter. <laughs> oh, it's supposed to be the comforter? I think so. I imagine it as like the bed sheets, like the fitted sheet. Oh God. I think it's the com I think it's what lays on top. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you could ever lay on that. That would be like so scratchy. Yeah, that's <laughs> all like this is even the comforter, I don't th- unless you have like a sheet between. Yeah, that, yeah, I know. That it could be. By the way, you know that's like a big discourse now. Like, there's people who don't have like a a flat sheet on their bed. Why? I, I don't know. People think it's weird to have a flat sheet. Like, it, it's just the comforter. People, some people sleep with just the comforter and the fitted sheet. And that's it. Like, I don't know. I need the flat I sheet. I absolutely <laughs> need the flat sheet too. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> That's a discourse then. That's apparently like, oh, that's something old people do. And I'm like, is it? Old people? Using <laughs> a basic sheet on a bed? Like any hotel would have? Or Gen Z, Gen Z listeners, um, if you use a flat sheet on your bed, send us a bed emoji. This is only for Gen Z. Everybody else is left out of us. <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. Or if you're younger than that, if you're like, I, I don't think any 12-year-olds listen to this podcast, but if you are younger, like, send us a bad emoji on social media. <laughs> oh my god. Um, What else happens during this uh, montage, though? Uh, this is when Larry tells Peyton that, well, there's a guy who's with a goofy grin, tattoos, tall as a fire hydrant. This is so dumb. <laughs> He's just... I'm sorry, it's so dumb. And he's gonna let his daughter go in the limo. I don't get it. And then Dan's in bed, and then we see the school. Whitey cleans up the mess. And Acceptance. Yeah. Did we talk about how this is connected to depression? Did we? <laughs> I mean I think we did when it came Oh no, Whitey. we talked about Lucas um, and feeling guilt and depression. Yeah. And then definitely Whitey's depression. Yeah, I think it. I think we got it. And do you th- like? Do you think if we go if we go with that theory, like, oh, this is about Lucas's grief over Jimmy? Like, do you think this still works? We could say like he's experiencing depression just in general. It might not necessarily be about Jimmy's death, but it could still be depression regarding that. I mean, I guess I don't know. I might be. St- it might reaching. be reaching. I think. <laughs> but acceptance. Tell us what happens, Caitlin. All right, so we see Nelly kiss under the sprinklers, <laughs> and they just basically, like they've been doing the whole episode, claim their love for each other. It's cute. It is sappy. <laughs> Go on. Lucas finds Brooke in his bed, 
and he cuddles up to her and says he loves her. Or I think he says, did I say I loved you today? And she's like, no, I don't think you did. And then Brooke tells him that she wishes he could rescue her from everything, which I guess is kind of coming from, like, Lucas is always rescuing Peyton. So Brooke then goes to see Peyton, and she actually apologizes for leaving her behind at the school shooting because she thought that Peyton was behind her. And then we'll get into this in a little bit, but Brooke and Peyton have a a long chat about, you know, Lucas having feelings for Peyton, or at least Brooke is worried about that. And they have a cute friendship moment. Then we go inside Peyton's house and we see that her dad made shelves for all her records from Ellie. And that's when Larry says that best friends should stick together and that Brooke can move in. So they're going to get two twin beds. Am I missing something? Well, well, no, I was just going to say, this is the part that kicks off the the coda for if we cannot see Mind's Epic. So if you want to just, like, we we can both just go through, like, the events that happen in this coda. Okay. And then we have Peyton tell Brooke that she hooked up with Pete from Fallout Boy. (laughs) And Brooke says, oh, Peyton, we're going to find you a boyfriend, honey. You don't have to lie about it. And then... (laughs) Then she proceeds to ask about how does Peyton feel about a round bed? <laughs> like, I'm like, Brooke, I don't, do you have, do you have a choice in this? I'm like, you know, your best friend's dad just said you can move in. Yeah, no round bed. That is weird. That's like a naily thing and that, a, that's it. I never slept on a round bed before. No. That seems like you would have to be strategically placed because the ends would be not as long as the middle. Right. <laughs> Unless it's like a Unless, perfect circle. If you're really circle. tall, that'll be a problem, I'm sure. But, you know, I'm sure. Yeah, is, is it a perfect circle? I have questions. I, I don't know. Okay. Anywho. <laughs> um, and then we go to uh, Lucas and Karen's house in the kitchen. This is when Karen is washing dishes. And then that's when she breaks a Keith Scott body shop mug. She tries to pick up the mug. And that's when she cuts her hand and she tries to wash it and she's like crying her eyes out. And then this is when Lucas enters, dressed up in a suit and tie. He's he's telling Karen that he's going to Jimmy's funeral. Karen tells him to go change, but Lucas leaves and ends up going to the funeral because, quote unquote, it's what Keith would want. And then we are in Lucas's car. Lucas drives Mouth, Junk, Skills, and Fergie as passengers. And the camera, you can see it like pan across all their faces. I thought that was a really nice shot. Mm-hmm. And I also want to say one thing about that scene, because you don't you, you lose this if you're just watching the episode itself. There was a deleted scene where we acknowledge that Keith left this car to Lucas. And in, in, in this deleted scene, Nathan and Lucas are just talking in front of it. And they're talking about going back to school the next day. It's it, like the scene's like kind of unnecessary. It really doesn't. It's completely inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scene was also like cut because Chad and James were wearing the same outfit. They were both wearing like light blue dress shirts oh. and like t-shirts underneath. Yeah, they're wearing the same the same exact outfit. So it got cut simply because of that. Oh my gosh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is kind of it, it is kind of like a full circle moment. The, the scene works fine on its own, but it is a nice full circle moment to know that Keith left that car to Lucas. Yeah, that is. But then we go to the cemetery, and this is when the boys are walking toward Mrs. Edwards, who is standing by Jimmy's coffin, and that's where the episode ends. 
Yeah, and it's sad because, you know, it's just the mom. There's no one else there at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you think this act, like, deals with the idea of acceptance? Because I, I think, like, if we're talking about... If this is supposed to focus specifically on Lucas and his grief over Jimmy, I would say, like, he's finally accepted the fact, like, oh, Jimmy did die. And that's it. Um, If we want to go more broadly... I think we could say the characters are all accepting that this is the new normal. This is how things are going to be. And this is how life is going to be. Yeah, I think it's more so like Lucas accepting the fact that like, this is what happened. Jimmy killed Keith. But at the same time, Jimmy was sick. And also, Jimmy used to be my friend. And Keith was the better man. And he would have gone even if it was the hard thing to do. That's how I see it. I agree. Um, do you want to talk more deeply about some of these scenes, though? Is there anything you want to chat about? Yeah, I think that scene with Lucas and Brooke, when they're, like, spooning, basically, in the camera, you see their faces, but they don't see each other's faces. Mm. And you can kind of see a lot of emotions on Brooke's face, like... Like they're not looking directly yeah, at each other? Yeah, I don't think they were really looking directly at each other in that scene. Oh, okay. I never really noticed that, but okay. Well, I th- the reason I say that is because you can see a lot of emotions on Brooke's face that maybe she isn't, like, verbally saying to Lucas. Like, you can tell mm-hmm. that she's, even though Lucas says he loves her, but she says that thing and there's, like, a sadness in her voice about, you know, I wish that you would rescue me from everything. Which then makes you think of Peyton. And then Brooke ends up going to visit Peyton. And... She first apologizes for leaving Peyton behind, and Peyton Peyton said, you know, the one thing that was keeping me going when I was in the school was knowing that Brooke got away. But then Brooke says, but there was something else that made you feel better in that library. My boyfriend. And I guess I can't hold it against him. Can I? I mean, the boy I love protected the girl I love as the girl he loves, too. And it's such, like, a sad moment. I I really do feel for Brooke. And Peyton tells Brooke that she's not going to hurt her again. And that she will always care about Lucas, but that's not going to happen again. But Brooke doesn't know that there was a kiss and an I I love you. And I know the kiss and I love you was, was out of, you know, was because Peyton thought she was going to die. But still, it's like extra information that Brooke probably should know about. Especially if you're going to claim to your best friend that there's nothing you need to worry about. Yeah. I don't know what the right thing to do. I mean, like, is it Brooke maybe doesn't need to know. But at the same time, if you want to be honest with your best friend, maybe being up front is the best option. Yeah. But at the same time, like, what uh, like what would it accomplish? Saying, like, hey, I thought I was going to die. So, yeah, I kissed Lucas. Yeah. Like. Especially given the history. I feel like if, you know, what happened previously didn't happen, maybe it would have worked. I don't, think, so, I don't think I could live with myself. Like, that's my best friend. I don't think I could omit I know. and feel good about it. It's one thing if it was, like, a friend who maybe you weren't that close with. But, like, your best right. friend keeping that, I couldn't live with myself. I could see that. So. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> That's an interesting question. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing is to do. <laughs> I don't, I don't know either. But yeah, and then they just have this cute moment where um, 
Peyton gets on Brooke's back. And it's just like an iconic Brooke and Peyton scene. <laughs> that was adorable. How they're like, you know, laughing and like giggling the entire time. Like, the, the love story between Brooke and Peyton is so much more interesting than like Lucas's love, like, mm-hmm. like a love story with anyone. And I'm not even shipping these two together, to make it clear. I'm saying, but like, best friend-wise, like, these two together are much more interesting. Yeah, they're great. They have great chemistry. I love them as best mm-hmm. friends. That's why it sucks that all, all this is, has broken them apart before, and it looks like they're still, um... There's still reason to yes, be concerned yes. at this moment. Yeah. But Brooke's moving in! <laughs> so... Yay! <laughs> Let's talk about our favorite moments now. <laughs> what was your favorite quote? So I already shared my favorite quote, which was the Whitey quote. Oh, you said yes. that, yes. What about mm-hmm. you? That's right. Okay, so I also have a, mon- a monologue for my quote. It's when uh, Brooke brings uh, Lucas to the party. She says, it's not a party. It's more of a cleansing for every kid in this school. You know, everybody's here. Everybody's invited. Everybody's together. So just check it out, Okay. We've got co-ed bathrooms, science lab for drugs and pharmaceuticals, health class for condoms, and people probably using them. <laughs> Spanish class has kick-ass margaritas, and there's the tutor center for anybody who needs a little extra help. Tonight we're all together, and we can stop judging each other and let everybody heal their own way. If you need to do this alone, I understand, but if you need me, I'm here. And that quote ties the entire episode together much better than any of the five stages of grief i think you're right it does that should have just been the theme like everyone grieves differently simple and it would it was shown effectively in the episode i don't know why they they pigeonhole their themselves in in these stages so like i feel like it like forced themselves to explore each of them and like it, it was forced that's basically what I'm saying. It was forced, so. I think so, too. It almost makes me wonder if, like, you know, when they sat down to actually write this episode, that they say, like, the five stages of grief, or six stages of grief, whatever the <laughs> fuck it is. <laughs> the stages of grief. <laughs> Are we, we said five so many times throughout the episode, and I can't wait to edit this later and see how many times we did the math wrong. <laughs> You know, like, oh, you know what? The stages of grief, that sounds fascinating. Let's try to write the episode around it. Or did they write the episode out and then decide to say, oh, let's let's try to add this in. Let's tack this on. Maybe this could be cool. Yeah. Because it doesn't work for me. Like, And even if we are going by the theory that I processed in real time with this is about Lucas's grief over Jimmy, I feel like it could work. But at the end of the day, like, we have an ensemble show where we're focusing on many different characters and we're not focusing on Lucas alone, you know? So it's not, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, that's true. Because a lot of the examples we pulled out weren't necessarily about Lucas. They were about other characters too. So. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's ultimately about the grief, you know, that they're all feeling from the whole situation from Keith, from Jimmy. It's like everything all combined together, you know, the trauma of it. And it would have been more interesting, actually, to hear a little bit more from Mouth. It would have been nice to have, like, a Mouth scene. Like, we had the Rachel stuff, but, like, aside from that. Like, it would have kind of been cool to have Mouth in the scene with Skills and Lucas when they were talking about 
heaven and everything. Yeah. But it probably mouth probably wasn't there though because Lucas was yeah. mad yeah, I know. at him in I a know. way. Um and that I, that is that is something that's interesting to explore though, because like because we don't really see Mouth feel guilty about his grief. I don't think he should, for the record, but that's gotta be something difficult to navigate. Like, hey, like my friend was a murderer and he died. You know, like that's gotta be complicated to unpack, and um, I've been fortunate not to ever experience something like that, yeah. but I know. I know that's gotta be hard. One of my friends too, like she was in an abusive relationship and um and you know she got out she survived like she's great but that uh that abusive partner ended up dying like you know 10 years after the relationship and she still felt like a lot of complicated feelings about it like she's wondering like should i be sad is like is this okay or should like or, or should i be relieved and she had to like sit with herself and realize like you know what no this like it's okay to feel some type of sadness about this yeah. you know your feelings are your feelings. Mm-hmm. You can't make them up. You know, they are what they are. But how cool would it have been if we got to see mouth process as yes. feelings about this in real time, you know? But anyway, I feel like that would have been a good organic moment for us to transition into our ratings, but let's talk about our favorite <laughs> musical moments instead. <laughs> I really liked Break Your Mama's Back by Slow Runner, which was when Lucas got to the party. I liked the energy of it. And it was playing that quote that you just read from Brooke. It was playing through that whole segment. And I just felt like there was a lightness to that song and an energy to that song that was kind of a reprieve from the heaviness of it, of the episode. Mm -hmm. So that's what I really liked. And my honorable mention would be the Susie Sue song, Light on My Shoulder, which was playing. We talked about, um, I think it was, was it all of fear? All All of guilt. guilt. And it was especially the moment when that montage, mid, mid-episode mid montage was playing. What about you? Yeah, that's actually my favorite moment. Um, the, the Light on My Shoulder song by Susie Sue. It, just because I think the montage is really great. And I also think the moment with Rachel Mouth Kiss, I think it's just a beautiful shot. And you hear that haunted, like, you know, you hear her voice doing, uh, I know. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait to hear this back. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's it's really good. It fits the emotion of the episode. Yes, absolutely. But what is your rating? I'm between a three and four. What about you? <laughs> I am giving it three out of five stages of grief. <laughs> <laughs> because like it's the stages that bring it down for me. But the episode, so I think, yeah, I think I'm gonna go with three out of five best friend piggyback rides because <laughs> that was so cute <laughs> yes but yeah like th- this episode is great but i just feel like i can't divorce it from the fact that the structure is very messy yeah. and the fact that they're trying to say something with that structure it doesn't work for yeah. me so that's why it loses a score it could have been a four or a five if it wasn't for that honestly though yeah, I totally agree. It brings it down. I, I was originally thinking of four, but then like as I was rewatching it, I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. Our discussion was really good, though. Yeah, like I said, great, not great episodes get the best discussions <laughs> out of us. But That's true. I will say I am looking forward to the next episode being much more fun. I know, and it's the first episode <laughs> I ever saw. Woo! Oh, yes. I can't wait to unpack that. <laughs> Oh, 
Always and Forever is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at AlwaysOTHpod. You can also email us at AlwaysOTHpod at gmail.com. I'm Jeremy Rodriguez, and you can find me on Twitter at RodriguezJeremy. And I'm Caitlin Illinich, and you can find me on Twitter at Miss I Reads. Outside of following our socials, the easiest way to support us is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. That helps One Tree Hill fans new and old find us. You can also support us via Patreon, where for as low as $2 a month, you can gain access to bonus content, our private Discord server where you can chat with us and other listeners, and early episode releases. Visit patreon.com slash alwaysothpod for more information. Now, if you don't want future episodes of One Tree Hill to be spoiled for you, now is the time to turn this podcast off. Otherwise, stay tuned for the spoiler segment after the music ends. We'll We'll be be seeing seeing ya. Welcome to the spoiler segment of Always and Forever. This is your last reminder to turn off the podcast if you do not want spoilers. So I have one bullet point written down for our discussion. Let's see that. Quote, unquote. <laughs> Best friends should stick together. Oops, LOL. Brooke and Peyton definitely don't stick together. Why do they give us this lovely scene with two best friends <laughs> getting along and, you know, being semi-honest with each other? And then yeah. they just take it away at the end of the season. I know. I am very excited to talk about from here on out. Um... And especially to unpack that, the Brooke and Peyton stuff. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, it's been a while since I've seen season four. Brooke is not the greatest person. Yeah. Not saying, like, her feelings aren't valid. She's, like, completely valid to be upset, but she's kind of a shitty person to Peyton in many ways. Yeah, there's that whole fight on the lawn, and Brooke makes comments about Rachel's, or Brooke makes comments about Peyton's dead mom, right? Like, there's there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a moment when, like, Brooke is like, uh, she says something about, like, oh, like, what are you laughing about, Peyton? Like, your I love you send people to their graves. Like, ugh. It just doesn't match and then Peyton, their character. And that's when Peyton claps back and says, like, if that's the case, then I love you, Brooke. <laughs> Which, like, Brooke kind of deserved that little clap back, I think. Yeah. It just doesn't match their character. You know, to act this way towards each other. Yeah, I completely agree. Are you saying, though, that this is uh, what it isn't like it should be? Yes, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, Wow, yeah. Like, you know, I feel like Peyton and Brooks should be better friends with each other. Yep, yep. Um, but also, oh my god, this is so clever. This is also the first time we've done this in, like, two episodes, because guess what? We're having fun now, kids. (laughs) What it is it like it should be is the title of season three, episode 18, which we will discuss next time. Yeah, next episode is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not great. I don't think it's a great episode by any means, but it is more fun and more lighthearted than some of the yes. themes we've been discussing lately. There's a lot of funny stuff that, <laughs> that happens. Yeah. <laughs> and taken from our OTH DVD box sets, the description reads... A weekend in the country, a perfect place, and a perfect time for healing. Rachel hosts her classmates at her parents' elegant woodland retreat. Back in Tree Hill, Karen turns her grief and fury on Dan. We'll be seeing seeing ya. ya. Was that good? Try again. 
Will. We're, we're gonna try again. Okay. Oh, oh, oh you did it. Okay. These oh. seats. Oh my god. Uh- <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. We'll be seeing you. We'll be seeing you. <laughs> Damn it. All right. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs>